You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Today we're going to continue, uh, actually we're going to start, excuse me, um, our a new sermon series based on the title Missio Dei. Uh, Missio Dei in Latin means the mission of God. And so this morning we're going to begin our series by looking at a very familiar passage of scripture, Genesis 1. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And if you're physically able, we ask that you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read God's word over us this morning. So hear the word of Christ. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, there's a great danger to be avoided within the evangelical church of America. This danger is a temptation for us all. This danger is apparent and obvious to most, but is rarely confronted due to the inconvenience of having to change our plans and modify our structures. This danger caused Eve to distrust God and partake of the forbidden fruit. This danger convinced Cain to kill his brother Abel in an isolated field. This danger cheated Esau out of his birthright. This danger collapsed the reign of Saul, and it was also the reason for the crucifixion of Jesus on the hill called Golgotha. The greatest danger is this, is to know a lot about God, but yet and still not know God himself. Paul describes this danger very well in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 5, and even verse 7. Listen to the words of Paul spoken to us this morning. But know this, Hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding on to the form of godliness, but denying its power. And the Bible's very clear to avoid these people. Listen to verse 7, what Paul describes these people as. He says, they're always learning, yet never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Last week, I reminded you that our view of God determines our pursuit of God. 
This morning, I humbly invite us to humble ourselves and refocus our attention where it needs to be, upon God, his trustworthy character, and his eternal mission to reveal himself to us in Scripture as our dependable God by examining these these following three descriptions of God from Genesis 1 and 2. We see in Genesis Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that God has revealed himself in three ways. He's the one who's before time. He's our creator. Number two, he's the one who begins time. He's certain. And then lastly, he's the one who's beyond time. He's continuous. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do love you. We thank you for this time we have to preach and proclaim your word. As always, God, take the little I have and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. I pray that our hearts will be reminded of the goodness of our God, the trustworthiness of our God. I pray that bowed heads that came in here, uh, maybe even heavy burden or, or maybe even depressed, I pray that you would raise heads. You'd be the lifter of heads even this morning. Pray that you would allow the countenance of your glory to fall on us this morning so that we may be reminded of the goodness of your character and the faithfulness of your person. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me ask you, where were you 20 years ago yesterday? Yesterday we remembered and mourned one of the most infamous events in U.S. history, September 11th, 2001. Do you remember where you were on this day 20 years ago? I remember where I was. I was a spry, young college student at Central Michigan University who just began my sophomore year as a student athlete there. I remember waking up and going to my political science class and witnessing my teacher's growing frustration for not being able to get on the internet to to retrieve her class outline. Unbeknownst to her and to us, no one in this moment was able to gain access to the internet. I remember walking back to my dorm and witnessing the World Trade Center engulfed in flames. I remember watching as a second plane made its unexpected collision into the tower that was remaining. I remember watching and praying for countless men and women who were trapped within this burning building as it started to collapse and fall into a heap of ash, concrete, and yes, even screams. I remember that day quite vividly. It's a day that changed my life in a lot of different ways, but not only my life, It also changed a lot of other people's lives because I also remember the following Sunday of churches being full of capacity. (laughs) Remember what we said, our view of God, right, determines our pursuit of God. In this moment of seeing almost seemingly insurmountable buildings that were the very epitome of freedom and justice and independence, when we were able to see those buildings collapse, something reminded us that we're not insurmountable ourselves. I remember people, including myself, who were faced with a very similar yet very important question. What is the meaning of life? 
Why do I exist? And where do we go on or how do we go on from here? See, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's actually a book of new beginnings. So no one should be surprised by the words that open the scriptures in Genesis 1. In the beginning. You see, this phrase is the most offensive phrase to be used within all of scripture. How so? Because it presumes the existence of God. It doesn't explain how God came into existence. It doesn't expound upon his origin. It doesn't even explain why God created. The only explanation that's given is that in the beginning, God. Note with me that God is the subject of the first sentence in the Bible. Actually, God is the, is the main subject of every verse of the Bible. God dominates this chapter in every way, and rightfully so. What do you mean? Well, what do you mean, Pastor James? What are you talking about? Well, the main subject is God. The direct object is God. And any adjectives that, be, that can be used can only describe or modify, you guessed it, God. The name of God appears over 35 times in Genesis chapter 1. But notice with me that when the universe came into existence, God was already present. I love how Psalm 90 verse 2 says it. It says, before the mountains were formed, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. I love how Psalm 93 verse 2 says it. It says it this way, your throne has been established from the beginning. You are from eternity. We say it a lot, but it's always worth reminding ourselves that what we say here a lot is that our identity precedes our function. Notice with me that God didn't become glorious because of his creation. God has always been glorious. Therefore, creation's goodness is simply a reflection of God's glory. We don't make God glorious due to our worship. Our God is glorious. Therefore, we worship. In essence, what is happening here in Genesis 1 is the doctrine of God's inter internality. God's internality speaks to his aseity. Aseity means that God is sufficient to himself and independent of anything outside of himself. So what do we learn about God? We learn two things about God. We learn, number one, that our God is eternal. Yet, his internality is his, is, is, is his aseity with respect to time. Love how John Frame puts it in his article, that inter, the um, internality and aseity of God, article written through the Gospel Coalition. Hear these words from John Frame. So aseity marks the difference between creator and creature, but it also guards God's freedom to enter the creation without compromising himself, to enter relationships with the world and with people. So he saves us from sin, not because he needs to do it, but because of his free gift of grace. 
God's internality is his aseity with respect to time and therefore his lordship over time. Because he is the creator of time, he stands above it, but enters it freely to do his will. Did you hear what he just said about God? He said that God is above time, but God has the ability and the opportunity to enter into it freely to do his will. Brothers and sisters, this is why we pray. We don't pray just to hear ourselves talk. We don't pray just to get what we want. We pray because our God is a God who is eternal, who is above time, and can enter into time and place any time that you need him. We pray because God responds to the prayers and the calls of his people. We pray because God is more than able to do abundantly that we ask or think or can imagine. Let me ask you something. Do you serve a God like this? Do you serve a God who's above time? Do you serve a God who's able to enter into any situation that you find yourself into? Do you serve a God who doesn't have to explain himself or his existence? You see, if you don't serve this type of God, my brothers and sisters, your God is not big enough and your God is not the God of the Bible. You see, our view of God determines our our pursuit of God. And what I want to do in this series of Missio Day is I want to recall and refine and reset our imaginations upon the scriptures of how God has described himself, how God has revealed himself. Because guess what? If I served a God like this, and I believe that this is the type of character he has and the power that he has, there's nothing that I can withhold from him in prayer. It's nothing too big, and there's nothing too small. How do we know that God never had a beginning? Look with me in verse one. It says, in the beginning, God, here we witness the first aspect of God's eternal nature. He's the God who's before time. He's our creator. So what does this mean and why is this important? You see, when Genesis begins with the words in the beginning, it reveals something about God. Not only is our God eternal, but our God is also self-existent. This is a good reminder for us that this is not true of anyone except for God. No one or no thing in all of creation can be self-existent except for God. This title is designated for him and him alone. In other words, everyone depends on something or someone else, but ultimately, guess what? We all depend upon God. Imagine if God woke up right now and said he didn't want to be God. All of our lives will be over. (laughs) All of our lives in a moment's time. I love what James Boyce says in his commentary on Genesis 1, volume 1. He says, God doesn't conform to our desires. He confronts us as the one who was in existence before anything we can imagine. Notice with me that God has no origins since God has to answer to no one. God has the right not to answer to anyone because he has no 
origin or beginning. It's kind of similar to when you're taking a long road trip. How many of us, raise your hand really quick. If you took a long road trip this summer with your family or with uh, friends, when I say long road trip for me, that's probably like five, well, I'll say six, five hours or more. Anybody, raise your hand. Okay, good. Excellent. Parents, keep your hands up. Thank you for doing that. Take down your hand if your child did not ask you, are we there yet on your trip? All, yes, all the parents kept their hands up. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate that. Yes. This is the most common question, right, on these long road trips, especially from kids, right? Are we there yet? And as a parent, guess what? You reserve the right to do what? You can answer the question or you can just ignore it. And in the same way, because God is a God who has no origins, he has the right to answer and to respond to questions that he, de- he determines worth answering. But by his grace and because of his goodness, God answers more questions than honestly he needs to, in my opinion. So what does it mean that God does not have to answer to anyone? It means that everything has its origin in God. It means that God is never required to give an answer or an account of what he does unless he desires to do so. And it means that God's existence extends beyond our understanding and our comprehension. Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts it this way. It says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, ever, so that we may follow all the words of his law. See, God is the creator of all things. And he doesn't have to explain himself to anyone. Job had to find out the hard way. Job 38, verses 3 and 7, listen to this. God confronts Job in his arrogance. He says, get ready to answer me like a man. When I answer you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its its dimension? Certainly you know. You searched, who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports his foundations or who laid his cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Here we witness the second aspect of God's eternal nature. Not only is God the God who's before time, he's not only our creator, but we see in part 1b that God is the God who begins time. He's certain. Look with me. It says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So, so, so walk with me here a little bit. So, so not only is our God self-existent, here we see that our God is also self-sufficient. In other words, he's our certain God. He's dependable. He's reliable. He is able love how Psalm 24, 1 puts it, it says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. So what does self-sufficiency mean? Self-sufficiency means this. It means that God has no need and therefore he depends upon no one. Now, let's keep it real here because this is not true of us, right? We're, we're utterly dependent upon other things. 
Think about it with me. Without air, our lungs would not be able to breathe. Without water, our bodies would not be able to function. Without food, our lives would lack energy. Without gravity, we would not be able to walk. And without light, we would not be able to see. See, we're not like God. And rightfully so. So we have to ask ourselves this question. (laughs) If God is self-sufficient, if he's not dependent upon anyone or anything, why does he create anything at all? Why does God take the time to create anything if he doesn't need anything or anyone? Again, let's go to James Boyce and his commentary on Genesis 1 for, for a quick answer. He says here, Boyce writes, here we run counter to a widespread and popular idea of God that says God cooperates with man and man with God, each thereby supplying something lacking in the other. It is imagined, for example, that God lacked glory and created us to supply it, or again, that God needed love and therefore created us to love him. Some talk about creation as if God were lonely and created us to keep him company. But God does not need us. Say that with me. God does not need us. He doesn't need us, but yet he wants us. He desires us. It's much like with my son and trying to now try to teach them different things around the house. Right now, we're on the washing washing dishes phases, which is awesome because they love it, and me and my wife don't love it so much. (laughs) So they get to wash all the dishes that they want every single night. Hey, you take it out. You put it in. You scrub here. They're all about it. We love it. We love it. Now, the problem with having your kids do your dishes is what? One, they don't always do it up to your standards, right? So maybe you have to redo it. Molly's shaking her head. She understands. She gets it. And two, right, some things might get broken, right? Or misplaced or mishandled, right? I don't need them to help me, right? I I don't, I don't, you know, and sometimes my kids say, you always do this to me, dad. Why do I have to do all the work? I'm like, bro, you are not doing all the work. Please believe me. There are bills that I can show you to show you. You are not doing all the work, but you are doing some of the work, right? And you're doing some of the work because I invite you into that, right? Because I want you to be a part of that. I I want your help. And listen to me, parents, you can understand. I want your mistakes, (laughs) right? I invite those in. When, When God invites us in, it's not like he's saying, hey, you need to be everything right and you must be perfect like me. No, God understands the frailty of our nature, but yet he still invites us in and he still allows his grace to cover all our mistakes and all of our failures and all of our flaws. So honestly, there's no excuse. (laughs) Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, he invites us to be a part of his mission of expanding his kingdom in South Louisville and beyond. Despite our fears, despite our faults, despite our failures, despite our shortcomings. And he says, listen, my grace is sufficient to cover your flaws. Come on in and, and get your hands dirty. Come on in and and talk to people about the gospel, even though you don't fully understand the gospel yourself. Come on in and 
and share a meal with someone when you don't even, you're lacking food even in your own home. Come on in and pray for that drug addict. I know he looks like he's far from me, but your prayers, the Bible says, the prayers of the righteous man availeth much. Come on in. I invite you in and your faults, your failures. I invite you in with your clumsiness and your, your, you, you don't fully understand. You don't know. I invite you in and I, my grace will cover all of your mistakes. Do you hear that today? Do you hear that today? You don't have to have it right. You don't have to have it perfect. But what you do need is you have, a, have to have a God who wants to invite you in and you do. A.W. Pink puts it this way. He said, God was under no constraint and no obligation or no necessity to create. (laughs) So what does this mean for us? It means that we need to, if we've been thinking this way, it means that we need to repent of our thinking and and turn to the ways in which God has revealed himself in Scripture. That's what it means. You see, our thinking says that we have value because of what we imagine we we can do for God. That's what our thinking says. We have value because of what we can do for God, right? And this is not what God has called us to. This is prideful, foolish, and vain thinking. This is not thinking that, that is founded upon the truth of the gospel. But here's the Bible's perspective. The Bible says we have value Because God grants it to us. He gives us what we don't deserve. You know what that's called? Grace. It's called grace. Our worth is according to the grace of God in creation and his free gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. That's where our worth lies. Not in what we do. Not in what we perform, not in what we say or how we are involved. We have worth and value before we do anything. But because we have worth and value, God has called us to be a part of the work that he's doing. Even though we're imperfect and even though we're flawed. A.W. Tozer puts it this way in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says that God exists for himself and man for the glory of God is the emphatic teaching of the Bible. The high honor of God is first in heaven as it must be in, be in earth. From all this, we may begin to understand why the Holy Scriptures have so much to say about the vital place of faith and why they brand unbelief as a deadly sin. Among all created beings, not one dare trust, it, trust in itself. God alone trusts in himself. All other beings must trust in him. Unbelief is actually perverted faith, for it puts its trust not in the living God, but in dying men. The unbeliever denies the, suffic- the self-sufficiency of God and usurps, of, as, and usurps, um, uh, and usurps uh, attributes that are not his. This dual sin dishonors God, and ultimately destroys the soul of the man. Notice with me that at the very beginning of creation, why did God create 
God didn't create worshipers. He, he, he doesn't need worshipers. God needs stewards. <laughs> he needs stewards. Look at me in Genesis 1.26. We'll, we'll get there down in, in a couple of weeks. But listen, listen to the words of God, uh, Genesis 1.26 and God creating mankind. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule and uh, they will rule and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock and the whole earth and creatures that crawl on the earth. Notice with me, God doesn't call us just simply to, to be worshipers. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah had a vision of the cherubim being before God. The angels are constantly worshiping God in before his holy and righteous presence. He doesn't necessarily need worshipers. What he desires from us is to be good stewards. See, a steward is one who looks after what belongs to another. And this is what God has called us to do. So what does good stewardship look like? Well, look with me in verse 2. The Bible says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This comes to our last point about God's eternal nature. Not only is he the God who's before time, not only is he the one who begins time, but we, here we see he's the God who's beyond time. He's continuous. I love this because it speaks to two ways in which our God can be trusted. Number one, our God can be trusted because he's the one who enters into chaos and creates order. He's the only one who can enter into chaos and create order. Listen to the adjectives used to describe the earth in Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless. It was empty. It was dark. There were watery depths. This, this language of formless and empty are used over 20 times in the Old Testament. And it reminds us of the fact that our God loves to turn chaos into order. Why has God pushed up, put us here in South Louisville on the corner of Taylor and Barry Boulevard? It's caused us to, to also put our hands to the plow and turning chaos into order. Love what Isaiah 45, 18 says about God. It says, this is what the Lord says, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God who formed the earth and made it, the one who established it. He did not create it to be a wasteland, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Notice with me throughout scripture, the fact that God loves to, in, to turn chaos into order. For he willfully entered into, into the disobedience of Adam and Eve to, bro, to provide a hope for forgiveness. He willfully entered into the killing of Abel to offer solace to Cain. He willfully entered into the death of Abraham's father, Terah, to provide direction and purpose for Abram in Genesis 12. He willfully entered into the adultery of David to provide an opportunity for confession. He willfully entered into the fears of Gideon and also Ezekiel to provide peace. I'm sorry, not Ezekiel, Elijah to provide peace. He willfully entered into the denial of Peter, and he also willfully entered into the murder of his son, Jesus, on the Roman cross. 
which reminds us aspects of formless and empty. It reminds us of what life looks like without God. See, life without God has no purpose, it has no meaning, and it has no direction. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. It says, and you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedience. But notice with me, not only our God can be trusted, not just because he turns chaos, uh, chaos into, uh, into, into creation or to order, but our God can be trusted because what he creates, he also sustains. Look with me, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he has had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. So I hear someone saying, listen, Pastor Fields, I appreciate all that you're saying. But how can I really trust God with my chaotic and sometimes overwhelming life? Like, how, how can I know that God will remain true? How, do, how can I know that God will remain faithful to me? Well, God can be trusted because he's consistent and be also because he's constant. Look with these two things as we end in this morning. Number one, God is consistent. That simply means that he's immutable. Immutability means that he's unchanging in his attributes. He does what he has determined to do beforehand, and his will never varies. He never changes. See, God is not like us. Praise be to God. God is not like us. We need to grow, develop, and change, but he's the exemplar of strength. We need to learn how to adapt and, and, and to, to changing environments and circumstances, but God is the epitome of perfection. We desire to be dependable, but God is the epitome of, of dependence. Psalm 19 puts it this way. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. Do you know what David is proclaiming there? He's saying that the sun right now that's in the sky is proclaiming something. That the trees that we see and the clouds that provide us shade, they are proclaiming something. What are they proclaiming, Pastor James? They're proclaiming the faithfulness of our God. That God's creation, the, the consistency of God's creation, the fact that it never changes, the fact that we have calendars based upon God's faithfulness due to the seasons of life speaks to God not changing, God not being wishy-washy. What does this mean for us? It means that karma is a lie. <laughs> for, for there's nothing that we can do that will ever change God. We can't act bad enough and we can't act good enough. I love how Andre Crouch, Crouch, the great hymn writer, puts it. He says, the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. He says it reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose 
its power. Why would it not lose its power? It would not lose its power because our God cannot change. Brothers and sisters, we say it often, but I, I can't say it enough. Don't allow your circumstances to define God's character in your life. Don't allow what you're going through to define the goodness of God. And don't lie, if you're going through a hard season, don't allow the circumstances you're going through to define um, that God is not good. God is good because he's good. He's gracious because he's gracious. He's great because he's great. Before time, before anything was created, the greatness of God ensued and was present. Hebrews 13, 8 puts it this way. It says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, but not only is our God immutable, not only is he consistent, but he's also constant. What that means is that God is inescapable. We cannot escape God. We, we can deny the existence of God. We can doubt the goodness of God. We can even denounce the name of Jesus if we want to. But listen, all of us will have to face judgment before God. Every single one of us. You can denounce God. You can deny him. You can even doubt his very existence. But your doubt has nothing to do with God's existence. Love what Philippians 2 says. It says, therefore, God gave him, him being Jesus, he exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means this, you either have two options of either bowing now or bowing later, but we all will bow. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and we thank you. God, we thank you that you've called us to bow before your presence even now as your beloved children. Thank you, God, that you've given us a reason to bow because of the greatness of your name, the goodness of your character. Father, you are good because you are good. God, we thank you and we exalt you for being the God who sees us, who knows us, and who loves us. We thank you, God, that you are the God who pursues us and invites us in despite our faults, our fears, and our failures. I pray even now, God, that you would be a part of those under the sound of my voice to bless them, to draw them into the grace that you provide through your son, Jesus, and allow them to experience you in a new way. Father, if, we've think, if we have thought of you wrongly, if we have not thought of you as being a self-existent, self-sufficient God, God, forgive us. God, we confess that we've thought of you wrongly and ask that you renew our mind as we continue to study your word in Genesis 1 and beyond. Grow us in this way for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.